Welcome to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times. Joining me for the podcast today is a man who has overseen rugby's successful return to the Olympic Games in Rio 2016, and that after an absence of 92 years. He was appointed CEO of World Rugby, formerly the International Rugby Board, in July 2012, and under his stewardship can lay claim to a record-breaking Rugby World Cup in 2015, with just shy of two and a half million tickets sold and combined commercial revenues in excess of 600 million. And more records broken last year when it was Japan's turn to host the World Cup in Asia for the first time, including a record domestic TV audience of nearly 55 million people for Japan versus Scotland and just north of 2 billion video views. He is the son of former IOC Vice President Kevin Gosper, who himself was a Commonwealth champion and Olympic silver medalist. His journey from pitch to boardroom via Melbourne and France exemplifies the role ex-players can have in adapting, enhancing and improving their sport. I'm delighted to welcome the CEO of World Rugby, Brett Gosper, into the hot seat today. Brett, welcome. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Brett, let me explore a theme that genuinely interests me, not the least of which it's, I'm guessing it's probably one of the more popularly asked questions you get. I know it certainly is um, to me from players, uh, competitors that are particularly reaching the end of their careers. And it's this, what is it that I have to do in order to uh, remain in the sport uh, beyond the field of play? Uh, and your journey is an interesting one because you played uh, first grade rugby. You then uh, embedded yourself in a pristine global career in, in advertising. Uh, and then, of course, you've come back to become the senior administrator in the world's game. Yeah, look, I think I've been very lucky. and I'm not sure it was a part of a grand plan at all. And it was certainly easier. It was certainly easier in my era as a, as, as a rugby player because it was an amateur era although I played in France and we, we, we got reasonably well paid, it wasn't something that you'd build a career on even in, in, in the 80s as it was when I was playing. So, you know, we were lucky to be able to have these two lives and manage a professional career at the same time as you're managing a sporting career. Um, but these days, I think there is still the opportunity to focus on a skill set. Your passion might be sport, but focus on a skill set. Is it marketing? Is it digital marketing? Is it communications? Is it, is it legal? Um, you know, in whatever aspect there is, qualify yourself in some way so that you can come back into... And, and, and sport is a growth industry. There are many, many more jobs being provided in this industry across all of those different areas. And if you have the passion for sport and you are qualified in a specific area, you can get your foot in the door. Um, but, but passion for sport is not enough in itself. You've got to be pursuing a skill set of, of sorts that will make you attractive to either a, a governing body, a sports agency, whatever it might be. But the, the good news for people is there are growing opportunities in, in the sports area, whether it be broadcast media, um, as I say, governing bodies, leagues, clubs, etc. Um, actually, as part of the 2023 uh, World Cup program in France, they're doing 2023 apprenticeships just to wait for the huge demand that's going to create in that country for the sport and therefore allow some of those apprenticeships, not just in rugby, but across sport, provide that, that, that new generation of sports administrator. Um, so, you know, apprenticeships is another way of entering, but you have to find out what, what is it, what part of the sport are you interested in? In, in Look, I get absolutely that it's it's not enough to just simply come off the field of play and and pick up a role in in a, 
at the level that you've done. But I'm guessing what you would say also is that it's pretty helpful to come into that role through the lens of a former player. I mean, if you get it right for the players, you get it right for so much else in the sport. No question. You, you come into the sport. Certainly, myself, I've been away from the sport since I stopped playing at the age of 30 and really you know, came back into it at, um, around the age of 50. So, but I knew and understood the language of the sport, understood what players were experiencing to a certain extent, understood the dynamic of the game, and that gave you a huge head start. But also, I think, even if you're not entering the sporting area that you may have practised as, as, as a player, um, you come in as a sportsman with an added, I think, self-confidence, with the um, experience of, of performing in front of people, which you so often do in meetings and so on, um, with, it, with, with, with a, uh, a mentality of doing your homework, with a mentality of knowing that you have to work hard to achieve. So I think you're already shaped um, for a business context in a very, very good way. All you need now is some tools and, 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 and some skill sets that help you um, really shine. But, but I, you know, I always think if I've got two equal candidates, if I've got a person who's a sportsman, who's done well as a sports person, I think that puts that person above the other candidate because they've experienced so much so quickly and they've been exposed to pressure and they've made decisions on the field um, and they have been able to manage themselves, deadlines and performance over a period of time. And it's, it's, it's a big, big quality. Are today's players more demanding of, of, of a position in the decision-making processes in the sport than when you were playing? Oh, far more, far more. Um, but the sport's far more complex now, a lot more moving parts. So that desire for them to be involved is a, is a welcome uh, aspect. We've evolved from even the, the eight years that I've been at World Rugby, where players were kind of consulted. Uh, they were involved in, in inverted commas, um, in the room somewhere at some point to, to be comfortable with what was happening. They're now very much in each of our committees. They represent the voice of not just that athlete in the room, but of an entire athlete's organization throughout the world. Um, and they're very much at the heart of our, of our decision-making. And, and it helps us make the right decisions, not always faster because sometimes they want to take a longer look at things, but, but, but often faster, but certainly with more thoroughness and, and a player centric you know, we're a participation sport. Obviously, we, we like, you know, fan engagement is the large end of that funnel, but we want this to be a sport that's great for players. Um, and hearing the players talk about the sport is the way you can best achieve that, that objective. Did you never think about coaching? Did it ever cross your mind? Uh, never. No, I, I was too busy. In my, well, I coached my school under 15s team while I was at university, which was a fantastic experience. Um, I did that with my brother over a season and it w was a busy, busy year. of. So there was no Eddie Jones career beckoning? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I think it's a special kind of person that's a coach. Uh, probably uh, just behind referees as a, as a, as a special kind of person. <laughs> Uh, it's it's an interesting sport, yours, because of course, the former players have have often reached the highest positions in the sport, particularly at a volunteer level. I mean, your current uh, your current president is is the great Bill Beaumont, you know, a hero of of, of English rugby. Um, it, it's it's it strikes me as a sport that's in many ways more welcoming of former players back into the ranks. It may stem, well, what people forget about rugby is that it's only a 25-year-old professional sport. We've just celebrated yeah. 25 years of professionalism. And it was um, skewed as probably an over-elite sport 
25 years ago in its amateur uh, era and, and and therefore many of those uh, players of of, the, of that era were doctors lawyers professionals um, uh, bill w- was running his own family company as well in 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 the rag trade um, and uh, you would like me to hear he be t- talk about, about it in that way i guess but but he, he was running a big family business and i think he'd probably describe it as fashion wear <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's call it a settle on textiles. Um, it, it, it meant there was a large reservoir of well-educated, well-qualified players, certainly in, in most of the traditional rugby markets. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves now. And we're seeing, you know, some, some very smart uh, recent players sitting on our boards and making decisions. Um, and they're very impressive. And, and I think they're continuing that tradition of, of, some very outspoken and, and, and intelligent former greats that, that become, you know, great, that will become great administrators and contributors of the game after their playing days. Let me move on to sort of more current, um, uh, current issues. It, it's now eight years since you took the role. Actually, it was just around about the time we were celebrating the games in London. Uh, one of my great sadnesses was that we couldn't quite, as much as we pushed, we couldn't quite get rugby sevens across the line uh, in London as a game because I think that would have that would have just taken off unbelievably well. It's, it's probably one of the sadnesses I have looking back uh, at 2012. It, it was a very early, uh, it was very early stage for you to be uh, in, involved, but of course you'd been instrumental in getting. Uh, rugby back into the Olympic movement as a as, as an active sport. Well, I mean, look, the, the, the sport worked very hard to get back into the Olympics. It was a huge objective uh, for the sport, um, and it, it, it they'd had several attempts at it prior to this, and there were rival people in. The was it really a crucial? It was a crucial move. I think it has been. I, I think it's a huge development play, in particular for us, to take rugby out of its traditional markets to be reappraised by younger audiences and so on. So I think it is a, 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 a crucial element. I, we're considered one of those sports who doesn't rely on the Olympics financially. And, 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 and we're at the bottom rung of the uh, revenue food chain because we're one of the last sports in as well. Um, but we do see it as a hugely critical and important um, sport for our fan base growth. Um, we know that it compares almost exactly to a Rugby World Cup. Six, six weeks of a Rugby World Cup puts about 10% new global fan base onto our sport. Six days of an Olympics does exactly the same thing. We have, you know, a fan base of about 400 million across the world. So 10% at each of those two events shows how important both of those events are in capturing new audiences and fans. And over that eight years, I mean, you've seen some, I mean, you, you would probably describe them as monumental. Others might even describe them as seismic shifts uh, in, in the way the sport has developed. Um, it must have been an interesting journey for you over those eight years. Yeah, look, it, it seems like it's been a lot longer than eight years in many ways. But yeah, there's been lots of things that have happened, lots of lots of evolutions. Um, whether it be those big events you just talked about, the London, sorry, the England Rugby World Cup, the Japan Rugby World Cup, Rio, a huge milestones, but also the progress in player welfare aspects. You know, we've had, um, you know, there have been issues around concussion, player safety and so on, which I think we've led the world, actually, in some of the work we've done in that area to protect our players. But it was um, quite daunting as, a, as, as an issue early on. And, and I think we've managed to, to um, actually manage that very well 
um, with a lot of evidence-based approach in that area. Um, uh, Brett, look, uh, choosing our words carefully, certainly mine, I think we've all recognised the innate forces of conservatism uh, in our sport. I guess uh, rugby is no different from many of the traditional sports, that it's that delicate balance between tradition, innovation, creativity, but not rocking the boat too quickly. What were the big challenges around the those particular forces that you had to confront when you took on the role as CEO of World Rugby? Of course, there are forces of conservatism in sport in general, and, and rugby's no stranger to that as well. Um, whether you're talking about the actual laws of the game and on the field or the traditional custodians of the game and the traditional geographies and so on, um, you know, the, the gravitational pull is often towards those areas. And it's important that, that our sport evolves for reasons of attractiveness to new audiences, to fans, that laws do evolve, that we evolve our geographies, that we enable the sport to grow. We're very dependent on the United Kingdom and France broadcast markets. And, and um, our recent World Cup in Japan has brought in a third, a third big media market to the mix. Hopefully we can sustain that after they host a World Cup. But other markets like America and South America, China, these are markets we have to grow in in Germany if the sport is to break out of that dependency on those two broadcast markets. So, um, and of course, women in rugby, uh, women in rugby, there were more new registered women players on the planet last year than men players in rugby. Um, we had a board meeting today where uh, one of our women board members was saying, she's um, Angela Ruggiero, who's former gold medalist. Yeah. So I think like she said, to be former, former chair of the Athletes Commission at the International Olympic Committee. She was saying, um, and she's a great contributor, she was saying there's no question that rugby's the most... Ma- and she was talking about the on-field aspect. of you, know, you could call it the most masculine sport in the world, she said, even more masculine than ice hockey. But the strides that have been made, actually, to move that needle with a participation now of 25 to 30% of our, of our participation base of our... 10 million players around the world are women, which is always blows people's minds when you think about it. And that's a reasonably recent phenomena too. Let let me quote from an interview you gave, I think fairly recently, it might've been to the BBC where you observed that geography and gender were going to be the two big drivers uh, of the sport. And I guess when you look at gender, you look at the women's game, you see some very distinct, but some very fresh markets to tap into. Well, everything's open there for for the women's game. Um, you know, we and this is where the Olympics has been a fantastic driver for us, and and causing people to reappraise rugby as not just a men's sport, but a sport for men and women, um, boys, boys, girls, uh, and so on. So the Olympics has been really helpful from an optics point of view, but also from developing sevens, sevens. Rugby for women has been a huge driver of growth. A sampler for the 15 sport helped drive that as well. But, you know, the, the, the growth in the mature markets will mostly come from women uh, over the next few years. So it's incredibly important that women feel drawn to the game and feel that they're very much part of the rugby family. And that's, that, we put a lot of work into that. And geography, as I said before, is, a, is of huge importance. Um, and, and we see, like, for example, in China, you could say probably the game is skewed. It is probably seen probably more as a women's sevens game than a men's 15s. Yeah. Um, in America, too, there's a high skew of women's participation and so on. 
Um, but th- they are the two. Geography and gender are the two big growth drivers. Uh, in that same interview, you actually observed, you talked a little bit about the growth of the presence of private equity, the influence of private equity in the game. I think at the beginning of your tenure, for you personally, the jury was a little bit out on that. But now it's become very much a part of the game and I guess probably quite a serious contributor. Yeah, it, it's, it's a factor now. I think the jury was out. It's not that the jury was out. It was we were also proposing a World Nations uh, Championship from World Rugby, which didn't require uh, private equity. It was underwritten by a marketing uh, rights agency. And we felt that we could, we could go it alone for a period without that. It was the same amount of money, but it wasn't as immediate as the private equity money. So in that sense, I felt that was a very good alternative. But particularly um, the Six Nations who uh, uh, have done a deal with uh, CBC since, the investment in the Premiership League and so on, CBC now are a part of the sport. They're an influential part of the sport. They're a welcome part of the sport because of the money that they're providing in these areas and and particularly more welcome given the times we're living and the revenue challenges caused by COVID. So, um, you know, we're, we're getting comfortable with that. Of course, as a governing body, you know that, Yourself, Seb, you're always cautious about those influences that can come in and upset the balance of power in your own way. It's not a power thing. It's more a the sport is managed. It's the ecosystem. We distribute money. Um, we have player welfare uh, elements and uh, g- governance elements that, that we think are correct for the balance of the sport. And what you don't want is someone coming in and having a bigger say at the table that may not be in the interest of the sport, but be in the interest of the commerciality only. And, and so... You know, I, th- I think certainly CVC and others that we've spoken to have demonstrated their understanding of the broader necessities in sport to have that, that, that governance guidance, not to get involved in that area, to understand how that balances out with their role in the commerciality of the sport. And I guess the risk is that for any international federation, you, you, don't, want to be, you don't want to end up with all the things that, you know, you get left with because, you know, the other, the, the other commercial elements of the game have swallowed them up. And, and I guess to a certain extent, you could cite that in tennis around, you know, the, the way the slams in a way have uh, sort of dominate that, uh, that landscape. That's right. That's right. So you, you, you want to make sure you continue to influence the right decisions made for the sport. You, you talked about you talked about COVID. I mean, I think from any viewpoint in sport at the moment, it has been the most unwelcome uh, of, of disruptors. Can you remember where you were when you heard that the uh, Olympic Games were being postponed? <laughs> Um, it's quite a shock. No, I can't. I was probably. I'd have been in this room. I think uh, probably working away on my computer or doing a Zoom call. But yes, earth-shattering when you think events like that, Wimbledon being cancelled, extraordinary. And uh, hopefully, it looks like uh, it, it's. You'd know more than I would. It certainly looks like there's momentum back behind the fact. There's some certainty in uh, in those games taking place next year, which we uh, which we welcome. Um, but yeah. Uh, Earth, earth-shattering times for sport um, and devastating for any sport that relies on spectators in particular. Um, if you rely more on broadcast, you're probably okay uh, to get through this. But if you, if you, rugby's a sport that spectators are hugely important, even at the international level where rights are sometimes 15 to 20 times more than the club game. Uh, the RFU in England, um, the big rich unions need 
spectators, hospitality, and so on. And um, hopefully we'll see that back um, next year. But but uh, they were hoping for that in October this year in some form, maybe not in a full capacity, um, but that's not been possible due to the realities. Um, but it's, it's it's causing obvious, obvious pressures. I mean, we've become a little bit of a relief uh, bank, a little bit of, we, we've, uh, you know, part of what our role has been through this is to provide funding. We're incredibly lucky to get the World Cup away in Japan and have three years to go to what will be the most lucrative World Cup we've done and we can plan on that basis. And we've, you know, had this relief fund of about, a, about 100 million US that has been used to keep cash flows going in about 30 of our federations around the world. And, and that's been a, a, a godsend. It's pretty obvious. COVID has been the great disruptor. Uh, and I'm sure most sports are reporting this, but has it revealed any fissures, any things that you think the game needs to address, particularly in the professional status? Look, I think what it's shown is that all of the different entities in rugby, whether they be commercial or geographic leagues, clubs versus country and so on, have to have to really work together to do the best via the sport in total, that if we can all grow the pie rather than argue over it, we're going to be in a better position. I think COVID certainly accelerated that mindset. I'm not, I don't think there's any guarantee we'll come out in a, in a, in a radically better place, but there's certainly the willpower and the desire to accelerate that cooperation and get to a better place. And I think that that's been the, the, the good side of, of COVID, if you like, under the pressure of what it's doing to our revenues and so on. That necessity has created that, that unification of purpose, which has been helpful. Do you think governments could be doing more to support sport and, and that loss of revenue in the way that it's picked up in other sectors? Yeah, definitely I do. I, I, I think, you know, sport, obviously great for mental health, um, physical health, uh, the feel-good factor. Um, certainly the rugby area is an area where not a lot of investment would give you very high return <laughs> in those areas. And rugby clubs, as football clubs do, play an incredible role in the community um, uh, and, and, and are pillars uh, within communities and, and the absence of those and also the threat of losing a generation of supporters and people connected to these clubs. I'm hoping rugby's not that fickle, but you can't help but think that, you know, some of those areas are pretty fragile in the sense that break a habit for a full year on attending clubs, matches, games, even in community and amateur rugby could, could lead you to other uh, areas that maybe aren't as fruitful, aren't as interesting, aren't as healthy, um, but uh, those people are very hard to get back afterwards. So I think it's in the community and therefore the government's interest to do what they can to help these clubs, whether they be football clubs, rugby clubs and so on, to keep ticking over and keep allowing their membership to, to be engaged and involved with their clubs. Uh, look, the, the technology that brings us, <laughs> us together for this podcast this morning, which sort of, I guess, is, uh, uh, you know, if, if you'd said to me at the beginning of this journey that the most popularly used expression was going to be, I'm, I'm sorry, I think you're on mute, I'd have taken good money on that at the beginning of, uh, of January. But I think certainly in athletics, we've absorbed some of those things that have brought us together through technology that we're now going to hold on to uh, in permanent mode post, you know, in, and into the pandemic world. I guess it's the same for you. It's exactly right. The, the technology around um, and even things like, I mean, you know, awards nights and virtual awards yeah. and everything virtual, amazing. But yeah, we, we, we were already used to 80% of it be the same. I'm sure your federation, 80% of our people, travel 80% of the time. So we were working remotely already. 
but the whole Zoom conference teams, etc., has brought large numbers of people together in a way we wouldn't have imagined. Now wonder why we spent all the money in travel and meetings and, <laughs> and offices and things like that. <laughs> I mean, before the thought that went behind getting 20 people into a room or more sometimes that you had to do, or often a, gr- a smaller group, um, was ridiculous. And we can now bring them together at the touch of a button and that's fantastic. There will, yeah. of course, be meetings. And, and there are, like we're going through a governance review at the moment. There are some things you need to sit in a room with people to get into deeper conversation, get out of the room, off record and so on. And that, that will always be there. But also just working from home and so on as well. Completely different. I think companies will go to a, maybe a, you know, a three, two, three days at work, two at home, uh, much more flexi work than there's ever been in our generation before. So all of those things are positive. Um, but it would be good if COVID disappeared. Has, has, has COVID in any way altered the trajectory that you've set for the sport in the last, you know, over that eight-year period? From a world rugby point of view, I, I'd say probably from a member union point of view, I'm talking about the central area, we've got our funding, we're keeping investing and so on. But yeah, like I think it will set back things. Uh, it will set back momentum that you have in areas of gathering fans. Um, it must do. Um, hopefully it, it, it's a v-shaped <laughs> returned quickly to where you were um, but you can't help but think it will um, set back some unions who are really struggling with with, with funding um, maybe the disappearance of, of, of clubs um, and the momentum generally in your fan base and your participation level is at risk and that's why it's all a question of how long this goes on for um, and, 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 and how much of a mixed environment you can manage until you get back to full full restoration. And the management of stakeholders, particularly uh, commercial partners, absolutely key at the moment. They are key. Um, and, and, you know, we've been lucky, uh, you know, we're, from a World Cup point of view, as I say, we're heading towards our next World Cup, but it's three years away from now. All of our partners are very interested in engaging in those conversations. Um, but the timing's not great to really get on with it for obvious reasons. Um, what is t- touched a little bit more negatively in our area is the, is the sevens area. And this is the problem when unions are looking to save money and hang on to just staying alive and, 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 and staying in business, you tend to cut the things that don't make revenue. And sevens is not the big revenue spinner that 15s is and women's rugby isn't either. We've ring-fenced women's funding in, in the world rugby area but Sevens is very much a spectator model. It's, it's, it's less a broadcast model. It's all about what happens in the stadia, hospitality, sponsorship. And um, that's, that's a rough ride for our current sponsors. But certainly HSBC have been very, very bullish in sticking with us and investigating new ways of, of getting the sport back on the paddock. And, and, they're, and they're very much acting as a partner, you know, as a Capgemini, as a DHL and our other partners. But... You know, it, it's, it's a difficult time for sevens in particular. We've touched upon the importance, or you've touched upon the importance of the women's game and, and, and fresh markets and, and, and a growth platform. Let's, let me look at the other element of diversity because obviously Black Lives Matters has been a, a very big presence, particularly in the last couple of months, and it's run alongside some of the challenges that we've had uh, around COVID, what actually is the game doing at the moment to accommodate some of those issues uh, around anti-racism? Yeah, look, I think we've always had it in our bylaws for, for decades. Apparently, that any discrimination of any kind, um, of any kind, is is uh, completely unacceptable in 
in the rugby area as, as it is in society and so on. Um, it, it's, it's more difficult. In fact, I had conversations with uh, the head of diversity for the Coca-Cola company, which I thought was interesting because it's hard for international federations um, in a way because by nature they should be diverse because you've got different members of different countries and, and ethnic groups and religions because you're an international federation. And many of these things are seen through the eyes of a prism of a national identity, a national federation, and so on. It's harder, it's much easier for the national federations to understand exactly what they're achieving in that area. Um, but we've always considered ourselves a highly inclusive sport. We work to be inclusive. Um, at the time, the Black Lives Matter was, was peaking on social media. We were doing our bit to circulate a lot of the content that a lot of our athletes were, were developing, and we made many statements to support their activities and so on. So, you know, we do the best we can as an international federation to support these causes, which are so valid. Um, what I'm fascinated in at the moment is the journey that all our sports are going to make beyond you know, the, the current challenges and into the post-pandemic world. Uh, you see commercial partners quite rightly being a, a really strong element uh, in that growth path. But I guess also you are looking at fresh relationships with government, particularly around uh, the right for all young players to have access to sport or young people around the globe to have access to sport and you must feel rugby is pretty well placed to create those opportunities yeah and we you know we have relationships with child fund and so on where they use rugby to educate you know underprivileged children uh, around the world and provide safe environments for children and so on using rugby to teach life skills and so on rugby is great. It's a little bit of an Olympics in itself because there's every, there's the shot putter, the athlete, the sprinter, the long distance runner. You've got all athletes on a rugby field. So it's all shapes and sizes and mentalities, men, women, and so on. So that inclusive nature of the sport allows it to be a little bit of a melting pot for life skills and so on. And that's how we, we position it. We position it as a sport of character um, and it promises life lessons and it does deliver on that. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's a sport which is is very and it's why again the olympic factor helps us governments in china are very interested in it um governments throughout the world see the benefits of that it's a sport for all which is very true to its values what keeps you awake at night given all the challenges that you and all the sports have at the moment are you a good sleeper good sleeper actually i, I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't lose too much sheep. I try not to. But what, if you mean, what, what is it that I most worry about, which I think is what yeah. you mean. Um, in terms of the sport, I think it's really accelerating areas where if you don't move quickly, uh, you'll, never get, you'll never get them back. You'll, you always feel like you're going to miss an opportunity. It may not be true, but that's how you always feel. And, I, and it, it is in those two areas of growth for the sport, which is gender and, and geography, um, we've got to get the women's game quickly to the point where it's attractive to sponsors and broadcasters. That it's not just washing its face, but it's contributing to the to the economics of the sport. And 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 that you want to accelerate. Secondly, we need to accelerate our commercial presence and our fan base in new geographies. And that also is something that we need to. And when you were talking before about private equity and and private money in the sport, you know. World Rugby is, it also would consider the eventuality of private equity in our own area, but we do it only in terms of how it would accelerate growth in women, in geography, 
in technology, in platforms, in fan acquisition, data, you know, is it going to help us do what we would have done anyway, but much, much faster, because this is a very competitive environment. And I don't mean just amongst sports, but amongst any general interest entertainment areas and capturing that, that, that youthful audience that we need for our futures. So uh, what keeps me up is, is moving faster. And as you said before, we're not always known to be the fastest of movers, sport in general, but, uh, you know, rugby, there's a lot of people involved in our decisions. When you're an international federation, the decision-making is, a, is an art in itself. And, and often a slow one. Um, and you just want to go, let's do that like, a, like corporations. But we're not built that way to our benefit and detriment sometimes. But uh, it's the speed of execution that worries me the most. Well, on that point, good, safe journey. Brett, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us Thanks this morning. Having me, great pleasure. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 